Good morning, everyone. It is good to see you here this morning. Um, turn with me, please, to Colossians 1, please. As I get sorted, I've been uh, presented with the whole new clicker. Uh, normally, I, I have responsibility for my own lap- laptop at the front, but even I have to uh, catch up with new times, so I'm hoping that in due course that will be alive. That's okay. Um, We have been thinking as we have gone through Luke's gospel about Jesus for everyone. And now as we enter into the new year for a short series, we're going to have a little bit of a a change of approach as we think about Jesus in everything. This is something that is close to my heart, um, something that I think that we've perhaps lost Um, And uh, I'm looking forward as we enter into this series. My responsibility this morning, in a sense, to to cast the the wider picture of it. Then next week, God willing, I'm going to dig into a little bit more detail on some issues, and then other folk uh, will put us right properly as they take over uh, for the weeks through for the next, next few weeks. I was preparing uh, this talk on, on Sunday evening as the message came through from Johnny that Mitch had been called home. My first reaction was, how can I even speak? And then fairly quickly, um, I thought, no. Um, What we are talking about here, Jesus in everything, Jesus in every area of our lives, is exactly what Mitch believed in and exactly what Mitch demonstrated. And so um, this morning as we come together, We do so in the tradition of those who have lived lives that we can uh, follow the example of. And as I want to turn to God's Word, um, I want to suggest to you, while I'll uh, be flitting across many scriptures um, as we talked a bit later on, I want to start with two prayers of Paul to remind you that this is not Ian McCorkle's idea or somebody else's idea. Uh, But this is what uh, our our faith is founded on. So Colossians 1, and uh, let's look at verse 10 for a couple of verses. As Paul prays, and he says this, Colossians 1, verse 10, And we pray this in order that you might live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, that you might have great endurance and patience, and joyfully giving thanks to the Father who qualified to share you in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of the light. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves in whom we have redemption through uh, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Those key words in verses 10 particularly, that we might live a life worthy of the Lord and please Him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work. Flick back to Ephesians chapter 1. And again, we listen to a prayer of Paul, verse 18, Ephesians 1:18. I pray also that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he's called you, 
the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power to us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God has placed all things, or everything, under his feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You get the theme, everything in every way under the authority of Jesus. While prominence of faith in both private and public life has reduced in Northern Ireland over the last 50 years or so, faith does still remain an important part of many people's lives. Yet, many people do not readily make the connection between church on Sunday and the rest of their life in every other day of the week. For example, many people perceive that their work life is not understood by church leaders and consider that some of their jobs um, are underappreciated on a maligned occupation for committed Christians. Work, sport, other activities can be perceived as secular or dirty, and it's sometimes even assumed that success, for example, in commercial life requires attitudes and practices that are ungodly. While some occupations like healthcare or education are maybe viewed with a bit more warmth, there's still a disconnect, isn't there? That daily life is one compartment of our lives, and our faith has got limited integration into it. Some theologians are, are, are suggesting that this is a failure for us as a church, a failure for us to define what is spiritual, a limitation of what we accept as spiritual or sacred and what we sort of push slightly away as, as secular. Some folk perceive that there's a disconnect between church leaders, particularly clergy, and laity, the ordinary you and me. Um, as part of my recent uh, Bible college studies, um, I carried out some research on this, and, and part of what I'll say is, is based on some of the findings. One person replied, I don't think that full-time church workers, ministers, pastors, etc., I'm sure you're not included, Neil, have much understanding of business and the pressures that are involved. Do you get that idea? that we sort of feel, well, they're in a bit of a, you know, a clergy ivory tower and they don't understand what it really means to be involved day to day. Um, while some have commented that there's a greater use of lay people, normal people within church, what they're saying is, well, yes, but that's to support the work of the church. So, yes, we, we get more people involved day to day in the ministries of the church. That's great. So, it's not all sort of one-man ministry type thing. But we haven't cracked getting ordinary people to take Jesus into everything, everywhere. It was interesting that um, when I was asking the questions in my research that 
Um, it did seem that folk involved in some of the newer um, independent churches felt more encouraged and affirmed than those in traditional churches. Um, one of the, the folks stated that they get regular check-ins from pastors to see how things are going. They pray for specific situations and requirements. They come out and pray on our business premises. thought that was challenging. And I wonder whether we want to think in terms of that, of how we really look at caring for one another properly. But these attitudes, I think, helpfully um, challenge this erroneous idea of a hierarchy with clergy at the top, overseas missionaries, probably get in there fairly high up, full-time Christian workers uh, in there, elders, deacons get in there, various caring professions maybe come next, and then when it comes to estate agents and lawyers, uh, we're somewhere down at the bottom. Let's see whether the clicker works. Hallelujah. Um, such negative attitudes lead to what is sometimes referred to as a um, secular um, spiritual divide. And here's, uh, for, for some of the more wordy bits, I've thrown them up on the screen, so it's not so much their points. There's going to be a number of quotations that I use in terms of the PowerPoint. But this idea of a sacred secular divide that separates the perceived spiritual church mission and ministry from the other of secular normal life. One writer has talked about um, and this is worth unpacking, a self-perpetuating downward spiral of limited real-life integration. So let's hit pause there. You got the, the meaning of that, limited real-life integration. Does our faith actually integrate into real life? Limited real-life theological appreciation. In other words, do we really believe that God cares about this stuff? Leading to a practice of functional atheism. Lots of big words there for you to get. But um, get, get the idea. It's, it's basically this going down a plug hole of we don't integrate our faith into real life. We don't actually grasp about what the Bible says about how God cares about real life. And so we allow ourselves to drift into this idea that on a daily basis, apart from where we click out of it on a Sunday, that day to day we live as if God doesn't exist and God doesn't care. Functional atheism. Bluntly put, Jesus is not allowed into everything. A bishop, Bishop Leslie Newbigin, um, sorry that the text maybe is a bit small in that, and if anyone wants these slides, they're welcome to, to give it to you. He wrote these words, to challenge us. It is in the ordinary secular business of the world that sacrifices of love and obedience are to be offered to God in the ordinary life. And he, there is this, this idea that um, we, we separate out what there is. Again, uh, the, the words there um, of, I'm trying to see, yep, yeah, uh, reverent Tom Allen was a 1950s Scottish Presbyterian. He wrote these words that I find extremely challenging. It's becoming clear that there is one way before all others to which God is calling his church today, that ordinary folk know in their lives something of the transforming power of Christ 
to go out as ambassadors into the workshop, the factory, the marketplace, the community. If the secular world will not come to us, then we must reach out to it. That sets something of the scene. So let's talk about calling the subject matter Jesus and everything. We're thinking this morning about the idea of calling. Most people desire to know that they have got significance and purpose, yet most folk don't understand this idea of calling and the significance of our potential. A 2013 um, survey in the, in the U.S., found that only one-third of American Christians felt called to do their current work. Only one-third felt called to do what they spent most of their week doing. Helpful book is this one, Oz Guinness, The Call. I recommend it. It is not easy reading, um, but is extremely helpful, and, and maybe sets a little bit of the, um, of the picture about what we're, we're talking about in terms of call. Guinness uh, says this, that we have a primary calling. The truth that God calls us to Himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we have, is invested with a special devotion and dynamism lived out as a response to his summons and service. Again, complex words, which is why they're on the screen. Let me try and and, and unpack that idea. Guinness is suggesting that we have a primary calling to Jesus, a calling to be followers of Jesus, but that that's not limited to one part of our lives, but that, as he says, that God calls us to himself so decisively that everything we are, everything we have, everything we do is given a special significance if we are prepared to hand it over to Jesus in devotion of service. But then he goes on to say that there's not only that primary calling, but that there is something that is a secondary calling that starts to to filter down into the reality of our day-to-day lives. Secondary calling, he says, considering who God is as sovereign, that everyone, everywhere, in everything should speak, think, live, and act entirely for Him. But we've got to work out what that looks like, which is why as we enter into this series next week, we're going to think about our time, talents, and treasure Um, our our stuff and our work life. We're going to be thinking about what the implications are for our social media, for our leisure lives, for sport, for our families, because we've got to not just simply take that idea of God has called us and we're Christians and and, and we, we, we sit and eat a bag of crisps until Jesus comes to take us home, but we've got to work out what that actually looks like on a day to day basis. And the challenge that I feel is that how much have I, as a 58-year-old, actually been equipped by the church to live my life on a day-to-day basis? And how much are we pretty much left to figure it out for ourselves? So that's why we want to try and dig into this to see what that looks like. Guinness, in this idea of secondary calling, suggests that our work lives, our specific vocation is part of of that secondary calling, that our work lives can and should be part of our calling. 
I'm going to suggest that the church has failed to meet the challenge of teaching the nature and implications of calling of vocation. I mentioned the research that I've done. Almost half of the people that I surveyed indicated that their church had never or rarely provided teaching or calling on vocation. Almost half, never or rarely provided any teaching on calling on vocation. And three quarters, or almost 75%, indicated that their church had never or rarely provided teaching or calling or vocation that included any affirmation of business lives. Um, my research was particularly focused on the idea of the stuff that you know I'm interested in on, on, on using business for, uh, in Christian faith. Three quarters of people saying, church has never actually addressed whether your business life can be used for Jesus. And I suspect that we are probably somewhere in that category. Os Guinness um, suggests that that's come about partly because of two distortions, as he, as he calls it. One he calls the Catholic distortion, and one he calls the Protestant distortion. Everybody gets a dig, which is pretty useful in this part of the world. Um, and the influence in, in Northern Ireland of these transitions makes it useful to unpack. He describes the, the Catholic distortion is that there has historically been an elevation of those in holy orders, um, priesthood, and so on. So we, we get that idea of vocation. Oh, yeah, you're called to this particular um, uh, holy life. Um, but Guinness says that's just led to a distortion that there's you know, those are the holy guys, and the rest of us are just ordinary, secular, get on with life. But then he, he, the Protestants don't get off either, uh, because they get a dig on the basis that in the, the Puritan uh, age, what happened was there was something that we have heard of as the Protestant work ethic, where basically, well, you know, I'll, I'll work hard for the Lord, but the reality of that did not really mean real-life faith integration. It just meant that you work really, really hard and you were really, really successful um, or, or, or not, as the case may be, and you did it because you thought you're working hard for the Lord. But in terms of a real integration of what it means to be a, a follower of Jesus was really not part of the, of the journey. Um, these attitudes might be changing, but I think we are still infected with probably a mixture to some extent of those. Even our use of the term full-time Christian worker suggests, isn't it, that there's some people who work full-time for Jesus and the rest of us, well, we're only part-time for Jesus. Well, that's not what we're called to be. It might be what we are, but this series is about challenging that and saying that's not how things ought to be. And because of this, the church has often retreated from engaging in the worlds of work, leisure, sport, media, social media. And it leaves us to form our views from conventional, secular, social thinking, rather than from the Bible, rather from proper theological reflection and equipping. So the core issue for us has got to be how we think biblically about our family lives, about our work lives, our use of our other available time, use of our skills and gifting, all as part of an expression of what it means to be made in the image of God.
We need to seriously challenge this thinking and to think through how we equip one another to be missional in all areas of our lives, Jesus in everything. In my research, again, as I said, there was a, a, a quite a marked difference in terms of how people uh, responded, depending on church background. What was interesting was that those from the so-called newer churches, independent, non-denominational, um, Vineyard, Elam, some Baptist churches, um, had a, there seemed to be a better integration of, for, uh, for work life or, or, or faith into work life. Um, conversely, almost everyone, apart from two, from Presbyterian, Anglican, and traditional um, independent churches like ours, did not describe their churches as encouraging of those in business. It's got to give us cause for concern, hasn't it? Um, you can gain a, a little bit of insight into why there's a difference. Um, one of the books, um, it's interesting, I, I don't agree with all, that Alan Scott, who was the um, he was the lead pastor of Causeway Coast Vineyard, but there is lots in this, this that is very uh, interesting. Um, one of the quotations that I find helpful was, uh, it's called scattered servants, and the idea of us being scattered into, um, into life. Scattered servants are not stolen from the workplace. They are sent to the workplace. We must see our involvement in institutions and industries and workplaces as kingdom work. I think that's something that's, that, that, that's helpful. So, if that's not how things should be, then how should things be? In 2 Peter 3, um, Peter says, how should we then live? Well, just as we, as we draw towards the close, I want to suggest three things as we set the scene that we take away. Calling that we've touched on, contact, context and conduct. It wouldn't be me if there wasn't um, three C's. Calling, context, and conduct. What um, Guinness talked about, um, this primary call to Christ by Him and for Him. This is biblical. Um, again, you're welcome to these slides. We don't have time to dig into them, but um, the, the, the texts that, that are there, we are called to Jesus. We are called to follow him. He met people and in, from all types of life. His life was integrated in a way which shocked and horrified those around as he met with the people who were outcasts, as he engaged in real life. And as he came across those people, his life and his words called people to God called them to follow, called them to submit their lives in obedience and lordship to Him. And so firstly, I want to remind you that calling involves a call to salvation, as we would understand it, to be followers of Jesus. Matthew 5 reminds us that our call is the challenge to be salt and light. And back in the 80s, there was a book called uh, by... Um, uh, Becky Manley Pippert, which was called Out of the Salt Shaker or Out of the Salt Cellar. It was the, it was the picture of, well, you can be salt, but if you're sitting in a, in a nice vessel, but you're not sprinkled onto anything, then you're no use to anybody. And that's what Jesus was saying. We are supposed to be in, involved 
and called to be involved that we might be effective. It includes the challenge to be witnesses. Isaiah 43 talks about God's people to be witnesses to those who look on. And it's picked up again in the, in the early church in Acts 1 as we are called to be witnesses in our immediate locality and further out and further out, Jerusalem, Judea, and to the uttermost parts of the world. The challenge to be witnesses. Not everyone is equipped to be an evangelist. Not everyone is equipped to have a particular gifting of speaking persuasively in terms of the gospel. But we are all all called to be witnesses. What is a witness? If a witness is called to, to a courtroom, it's to tell and, and show what you've experienced. Folks, if we've been called to Jesus, then we are called to be His witnesses to tell and show what He means to us everywhere and in everything. And we are called to be ambassadors an amazing picture. If I go into an embassy, I've been fortunate to be in the British embassy in Pristina. Um, and in there, uh, you know, the pictures were up on the wall that showed this was a little bit of Britain right in the middle of, of, of Kosovo. Um, a, a, an outpost that where the loyalty is clear as to where um, where, where the loyalty is too. But it's not just, again, that the, the embassy is there simply to be, you know, there with the walls around it, but that is the outpost for engagement into that country for the cause of the, of the sending country. It's not that we've got to wrap ourselves in protective bubble wrap, but rather engage with people for Jesus. This is what it means to be part of God's great mission, calling. But secondly, I want you to think of, of taking that idea of calling, that we're called to be Jesus, but then it's not that calling operates in a vacuum. It has got contexts. It's, it, it exists somewhere. At a most basic level, we exist within this world. Um, the Chris Wright, who spoke at New Horizon last summer, um, I, I, I quote regularly, a fantastic uh, theologian and writer. He reminds us that this world is our arena of mission. But it's not about Chris Wright. What does Jesus say? John 17, Jesus prays, and he prays, and he, he says to the Father, I'm not going to take them out of the world, but rather I want to leave them in the world. He could have chosen to do that. He could have chosen at that moment whenever you become a Christian, bang, you're extracted to heaven. That's not the way he's put it together. We are called to Jesus, and then we are put in mission in place. Christ chose not to extract his followers. Rather, his prayer that we would be protected, that we would be sanctified, made uh, right by objective truth, and that we would be sent missionally with a message. But our context is not just the world. It can be further refined because each Christian has got, if you like, subcontexts. Your by geography, by community, 
by the job you do, by the family that you're in. It breaks down into detail. And what we want to try and do as we, as we look at this over this next three weeks is say, what does it look like to be Jesus in these contexts? And we've got to do some work about that. We've got to think about what's appropriate because what's appropriate as we contextualize our calling in one situation might not be appropriate in the other. To live as a Christian in the business world is different from what it is to live as a Christian in the, in the primary education world. What it is to live as a Christian in the primary education world is different from the healthcare world. It's different from the home world. We have work to do to work through what that means to live for Jesus. Down at the bottom of this slide, I love uh, these two quotations. Goheen and Mullins ask, where do you encounter the brokenness of the world? We live in a world broken by sin. Where do you encounter the brokenness of the world? And Buchner says, the place that God calls you to can be the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meets. How have you been gifted? What makes your heart beat faster? What are you good at? Where do you see the world hurting? How can you bring those together? That how you've been shaped uniquely and where this world is broken, where do those things come together? And that might be a clue as to where your calling is. I'm going to finish by uh, throwing this slide up. There's more I've got, but I'll throw it into next week um, so that we get the, the three C's finished. Calling, context, and conduct or ethics. When we live in this situation, then we have got to be visible. These, again, are the quotation from Wright. Christians are to be visible to the nations. That was Israel's historic positioning. Our positioning is here in Northern Ireland, in your workplace, in your school, in your university. Christians are to be visible to the nations by the quality of their moral lives as Israel had been intended to be but failed. And the purpose of that ethical visibility is ultimately to bring the nations to glorify God. I want to pick that up as we move into next week, the idea of glorifying God. While Mitch was brought up in the context of Methodism, it was him who quite often reminded us that the Presbyterians had it partly right in the catechism that said, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. We sort of know that phrase, don't we? Man's chief end to glorify God. Great phrase, but what does it mean in reality? Jesus in everything. A pointer that by the way we live, by our conduct, that we point to Jesus. And indeed that that leads people to ask questions that allows us to point them to Him, that they may hear His call, and they may come to know Him. These three facets, calling, context, and conductor, are distinct, but they're interwoven. And we're going to think a little bit, again, how that works through next week into some issues of uh, integration in our, in our lives. Let me finish by bringing us a challenge as a church. 
because I've said earlier on that I think that there has been a failure of the church to grapple with these issues. This means, Bishop Newbigin says, equipping all members of the congregation to understand and fulfill their several roles in this mission through faithfulness in their daily work. What does it mean? How can we equip one another so that when we come here together, we come to worship, we come to give thanks, but we come to be equipped rather than a mindset that delegates everything to church. It's not church's job to see people come to Jesus. It's not church's job to be mission and missional. Because ultimately, biblically, who's the church? It's you. It's me. And we ought to be those people that allow that equipping to happen so that we can go out to where we are, that we can support one another where we are, that people are impacted for Jesus, and that they become church, and they come together with us to worship, to celebrate, and circularly to be equipped to go and reach others. Jesus in everything. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that by your Spirit you would take of what is yours, that you would speak to us, and we thank you for your Spirit that indeed is the one who equips us to live for you. Father, we pray that we might do so to your honor and to your glory, because he, Jesus, alone is worthy. Amen.